Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. Morning, and welcome to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes. And for the next few moments, I would like to ask you to stay with me. About 30 minutes, that's all this show is, 30 minutes. But 30 minutes of some motivation, some inspiration, a whole lot of education, and absolutely zero manipulation. No hidden agendas here, folks. No one trying to get you to give us anything. Not trying to have you join up, fess up, give it up, nothing like that. This show is strictly about giving you accurate information. Information that I pray will assist you in verifying and identifying the plan of God for your life. If you can do that, then you have the freedom and you have the privacy to orient and adjust to the plan anytime you'd like to. So it is my prayer that by listening to this show, you will be challenged, you will be edified, and that you will glorify Jesus Christ to the maximum in your life if, in fact, you are a Christian. Very seldom would a non-Christian listen to a show like this, but it does happen. I have met many people in my life who do not believe that Jesus Christ was the anointed Son of God, and it's always amazing what they do believe. You know, we normally we believe by empirical data, or we believe by some sort of rationale, or by faith, one of the three. And uh, it takes faith to become a Christian. It does. There's not enough empirical data. Some people want to see Jesus in the flesh. That's Thomas wanted empirical data. He didn't believe that Christ had really resurrected from the dead. But, you know, it takes faith. And it takes faith to reject him also and to think that you have a better plan because a person that's not a Christian cannot prove God doesn't exist. Just like they'll say, well, you can't prove God does exist. Well, we may not be able to prove it empirically by producing God on stage tomorrow at 1 o'clock, but we know it by faith because by faith the Bible says, for by grace have you been saved through faith, and it's the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone would brag about it. So it takes as much faith to be an atheist as it does to be a Christian. I don't know if you've ever thought about that because the atheist empirically cannot prove that God does not exist, and he cannot prove that Jesus Christ is not the anointed Son of God. And so by faith he believes in his own mind that what he thinks is accurate, and that's a faith decision. It's really strange, isn't it? And yet that's the way it is. Well, I want to talk to you today. You know, we started a show two weeks ago, and that show was on the process, talking about the process that God has for all of us who want to grow up and who want to become believers that have an impact in this world. One of the things that is critical is that we all have to be on the same page. We can't be, uh, like if you're a football team and you learn the process, everyone has to be playing the same plays. You can't have a, a hot dog who won't follow the rules. The coach wouldn't play a man like that, even though he could have all the talent and all the skills and all the speed. If he didn't learn the plays, he can't play. And so the Bible says every decision we make is critical. 
And every decision we make involves much more than just what we want. So we are, the Word of God says, all to be on the same page. And I'll read it to you in Ephesians 4. And this is verses 11 through 13. The Apostle Paul penned this when he said, And he himself, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then listen carefully. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. In other words, until we're all on the same page. Wow. God wants you to be on the same page with him, and God wants you and I to be on the same page. And so the protocol plan of God that you hear me talk about is the process by which we get on the right page. Because without learning the protocol, the protocol plan of God, if we don't learn it, if we don't understand it, what happens is we drift in time and we fail to redeem the time. And so the Bible does warn us in Ephesians 5, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as a fool, but as a wise person, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Walking circumspectly means to walk with accurate direction, to walk exactly correctly in the right way, not as a fool. Remember, the Bible says in Proverbs 12 and 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. A fool is a person who has negative volition. The fool is the man who says there is no God. That's the fool. The fool is the man who says... Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. That's the fool, because he has rejected the truth, and he believes that his way is right in his own eyes. Now, the Bible is clear about this. You can't operate that way. And another thing the Bible is very clear about is you can't operate with bitterness. Bitterness is an enemy to any Christian. And just for a minute, I want to talk to you about this. You have to understand something. You, you, you and I, we have people that let us down all the time. We have people that steal from us, even family members that borrow and don't pay back. We have people that double-cross us, that wait till our back is turned, and then they malign us and, and criticize us, and one of the worst places for that to happen is in church. More than likely, like me, you've had many tendencies to become bitter about some people test or some system test. But bitterness is not allowed in the Word of God. It is a very, very destructive attitude. Let me read how the disciples were tested in this area. I'm going to show you from Matthew 20, verses 20 and 28 through 28. And here's the story of the mother of Zebedee. Uh, Zebedee had some sons, and the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons came worshiping Jesus. So here's mom bringing her two boys along, and she's bowing down to Jesus, wanting to talk to him. And he said unto her, what do you want? And she said, would you grant that these, my two sons, may sit 
one on the right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom? But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. And then turning to James and John, he said, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And they said unto him, yes, we are able. And then he said, well, then you shall drink indeed of my cup and you shall be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. That's suffering. That's what it's referring to. But to sit on my right hand and to sit on my left hand is not mine to give. It shall be given to them for whom it is prepared for by my father. And then when the ten heard it, the ten being the other ten disciples, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Uh-oh, there's trouble in the camp. Now, let me give you a few points on this, okay? Here it is. In Mark 10, 35 through 45, the book of Mark says the boys came by themselves, and Matthew says their mama came. Ever how it happened, both writers saw it, remembered it different, but the sons probably more than likely encouraged their mom to do it. I think their mom came. And uh, I think they're still confused about the kingdom because the kingdom had been rejected. The Jews had rejected their Messiah. The kingdom was not going to come. The kingdom was going to be postponed. He had already told the disciples three separate times he was going to go to Jerusalem and be killed and be buried and be resurrected. There was a new kingdom coming. He was teaching them about the church age, the mystery doctrine of the church. It had never been like that before, and yet it was about to occur, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ was postponed until the millennium. And so these two boys wanted to position themselves in what they thought would be the kingdom. And the first thing is you never want to try to promote yourself, ever, And people that try to promote themselves into a position of prominence make a lot of mistakes. Listen to this. Luke 14, 11. Everyone who promotes himself himself shall be humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be promoted. And then Proverbs 11, 2. A person's arrogance will bring him low. But with the humble is wisdom. That means a humble person is teachable. Here's the principle you have to remember. Self-promotion, trying to maneuver and get ahead of everyone else. Self-promotion or self-indulgence is not part of God's plan. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to show it. I'll show it to you in just a moment. In 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, the Bible clearly says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he may promote you or exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. When this verse says humble yourselves, it means to rank yourself behind other people. There must be a point of time in your life when you come to this, when you understand this, that others are more important. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did in Philippians 2, 8. It says, and being found in appearance as a man, and this is speaking of Jesus Christ, our Savior, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death to the cross. 
obedience to authority is indicative of humility. If you cannot obey authority, you have no humility. And so, here were these two disciples wanting to be promoted to a position of prominence in the kingdom, and the other ten were upset about it. Now, Jesus called unto him and said, and these are the other disciples, called unto them and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority. But, and here's a conjunction of contrast, this is in the plan of God. Listen carefully. It is not so among you. Whoever wants to be great among you, let him be your minister. The Greek word there is diakonos. It's a person who sees to your needs. And the Lord goes on to say, whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. And the word used there is doulos, or a slave. And so the measure of greatness in the plan of God is to serve and see to the needs of others. And then he goes on to say it himself. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life as a ransom for many. When the Bible says the disciples were moved with indignation, there's a little principle here I don't want you to miss. This Greek word, moved with indignation, means they were irritated, but it does not necessarily mean they had committed sin. You see, it's when you let irritation go into anger that you sin. Irritation must go to anger for there to be sin. Irritation is not a volitional responsibility sometimes. Something happens and it irritates you, but if you dwell on it and you let it set you off, in other words, you can do one or two things. You can respond to the situation or you can react. If you react to the situation that offended you, that made you angry, made you mad, then you're going to move into anger. And here's what the Bible says about anger. Maybe you haven't heard all of this, but anger motivates jealousy and cruelty. Proverbs 27, verse 4. A person cannot be angry without being cruel and being unfair. Second principle, anger is related to stupidity. That's right, stupid people. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, do not be hasty to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of a fool. See, a person's never smart when they're angry, which is why many people say many stupid and embarrassing things in anger. If you have to deal with a problem, you've got to have your senses about you, so don't lose your temper or you'll make a fool of yourself. Thirdly, anger is a sin from the old sin nature. Galatians 5.20 talks about it. Fourth, anger is never isolated. Proverbs 29.22. By this, the Bible says an angry person stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered person abounds in transgression. So an angry person is going to go around and 
try to get somebody else on his side. He's going to call somebody and say, do you believe what that idiot did to me? And so they will try to turn people against you. Or you will try to turn people against someone else because you're angry at them. You will stir up strife. And if it happens in a church where someone gets angry because of something the pastor did that that offended them or overlooked them, first thing they're going to do is get on the phone and call someone and stir up strife. The Bible says that anger can destroy a nation in Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Anger is associated with grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. Anger is a violation of the family honor code of God, Colossians 3.8. Now you also put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. See, that's not the protocol plan of God. Anger is an emotional reactionary sin it is not you living the christian life when you get angry when you react to the irritation you are out of fellowship you have sinned and you must admit the sin to god because if you go and do something for god then you're going to wind up doing the right thing in the wrong way and the simple illustration we give all the time is you're driving to church on Sunday morning and someone in traffic makes you mad or one of the family members didn't leave on time and you're mad and you're upset and you go to church, you're at the right place in the wrong way. You have not confessed your anger. They irritated you and you got mad and you rode all the way to church and you didn't even speak to each other because you're mad at each other. And you didn't go and say, Father, I've just made an idiot out of myself. I need to confess my anger to you. That's how you recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. But you won't do it because you have quenched the Holy Spirit and grieved the Holy Spirit, and you like being angry because you're stewing in it. And you're making a fool out of yourself. You're not allowed to do that in the plan of God. Anger can hinder your prayer life. 1 Timothy 2.8 Therefore I desire that men in every place pray Lifting up holy hands without anger and without dissension. Anger can result in self-induced misery. Proverbs 22.8 If you fail to interpret history, or if you fail to interpret your circumstances correctly, you can get frustrated and get angry, and you will be mad. You will be upset. And you can go into chain sinning one sin after another, like smoking one cigarette after another, and it all starts with one sin, such as the mental attitude sin of anger. And then if you're in that sin, you can cause everyone in your periphery, your family, your friends, you can make all of them miserable too because you're spewing out all of your frustration and your anger and your bitterness all over them just as if You had a cold or a virus, and you sneezed on them, and you spewed out all the germs on them. Here you're spewing out all your hatred, your vindictive thoughts, your implacability. You're spewing it all over everyone. That's anger. Our Lord makes it clear that's not the way to live. 
he made it clear to the disciples that we do not compete with each other for recognition in the plan of God. In fact, if we want to be first, we must have humility. And that is the most critical thing in the world. If you want to be a game changer for God, you have got to have some humility. A game changer. A person that changes the course of history. Could you be that person? Could you? You say, well, I'm just an insignificant person and I live in a house and in this city here and, uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord and I, and I study my Bible and I pray, but, I, I mean, how could I be a game changer? Well, a game changer can change the course of history, that's for sure. Someone like that old guy Steve Jobs that started Apple Computers or someone like Alexander Fleming that discovered that mold could kill viruses like penicillin, see? Or the man named Otto Frisch who developed the atom bomb. Those were some game changers, but our Lord had a few game changers too. Peter, the gill netter, the rock, and the Lord said, you know, this is going to be an amazing thing, Peter. I am going to build a church, and I'm going to be the chief cornerstone, and I'm going to use you to build it. Yes, Peter, John, the last one of the disciples to die. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. James's brother was the two that we'd just been talking about, James and John. James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa around A.D. 44. The legends go on about what happened to these game changers, these 12 disciples, like Andrew, who was crucified in the form of an ex, and Philip from Galilee crucified, Bartholomew skinned alive and beheaded, Matthew killed by a spear, James, the son of Alphaeus, beaten to death with a club. Simon, the zealot, crucified. Judas, we know he committed suicide. Thomas, the doubter, killed by a spear. Thaddeus, one of the disciples, crucified. Game changers. What was it about them? What was it that made them do these sort of things? What was it that made them give their lives? Because they were game changers. There's something about being around Jesus Christ that just changes people. Do you remember where the Bible says, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? These are the men on the road to Emmaus when the Lord appeared to them. Their hearts burned within them when he left. They couldn't believe it. Listen, an encounter with Jesus Christ is life-changing. It changed the lives of all of these disciples. It changed the life of Paul when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. In the search for a game-changer, God's not looking for the best person, the best-looking. He's not looking for the strongest person. He's looking for the person with the most humility. That's the game-changer. See, we live in a season of crisis. America is waiting on a game changer to show up. You look at the paper. You read the paper. Watch the TV. Everybody's crying for someone to come straighten the mess out. Any individual who could step up and take control, calm the financial markets, resolve the Middle East crisis, heal the rift between the Muslims and the Christians. Well, he's coming. 
but he's not who you think he is. The Bible says he is the Antichrist, and he will be a game changer, and everybody will love him until they discover who, in fact, he is. Why would a game changer submit himself? Because their hearts burn within them. When the Lord Jesus Christ called these disciples, it's unbelievable the fire that they had. And what about you? Is it possible that when the Lord Jesus Christ called you, that you had that same fire? You know, these disciples had to reorient their thinking. They had to go through a process. He had to tell them that he was going to be killed. The kingdom was not coming right now. Listen to Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. Wait a minute. That's not what they signed up for. Peter was utterly shocked. He confronted the Lord Jesus Christ and assumed that the Lord Jesus Christ must be delirious. And unfortunately, he opened his mouth and spoke when he should have listened because the Lord Jesus Christ looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Maybe you would have left the bunch when Jesus called you the devil, would you? Would you have gotten mad and said, well, after all I've done for you and I've been with you everywhere, you're going to call me the devil? I'm leaving. Listen, don't ever assume you're smarter than the Lord. And Peter, being a little bit impetuous, just assumed that the Lord must be delirious here. Maybe you would have quit. Maybe you would have had a little pity party and gone over and sat on a rock and thought about that after all I've done for him. And he talked to me like that. Peter and every one of those disciples had to orient and adjust to the new plan. It was a protocol plan of God, and Jesus taught it to them in parables. They had to learn each parable and understand what it meant so that they could, in turn, disclose it to us. One of the greatest, most dangerous things in the world is representing God without understanding the protocol plan of God, without understanding the system. Because if you don't learn the system, if you don't understand the process, you can never be a game changer for God. And unfortunately, we have in pulpits all across America today, men and women who are not game changers. They do not represent God. They do not understand the system. They have never learned the protocol plan of God. Some of them were not even called by God. And yet they chose it as a career or a vocation. That's not what being a minister of the gospel is. It is not even a choice. It's a calling that God puts on you. And it's a lifestyle that you live until you take your last breath. Heck, you don't retire if you're in the ministry. You fight until you can fight no more. I hope you're listening I hope you're learning. I love teaching it to you. And I will be back next Sunday, same place, same time. Until then, this is your host, Rick Hughes, saying thank you for listening to The Flotline. 
Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.